Our reading today is Galatians chapter 2, from verses 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, Father, thanks again for your word. Without it, we are lost, and uh, we thank you for your spirit who applies your wonderful word to our hearts and minds. Would you do that now for us, please? Encourage us and uh, rebuke us as we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I gave this, uh, this sermon the title, Mockery of the Cross and How to Avoid It. Uh, you do realise, don't you, that Christians can be just as insulting towards the cross of Christ as non-Christians? You don't need a sharp wit and a Twitter account to insult the cross. You don't need a political agenda or an aggressive atheism to insult the cross. What about you? Have you ever mocked the cross? Seems like an outrageous thing for a Christian to do. But this morning, I think we'll see that it's actually a very easy thing for a Christian to do, and we'll come to that a little later. But first of all, I'd like to dive into this text that we've just heard and get our heads around this story. It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? You know that as we went through and read the word Kephas, the name Kephas, we're talking about Peter, don't you? Well, what we have here is a, what, what looks like a very big, very public conflict and of course, we, we prefer to keep our conflicts private, don't we? That, surely that's the best way to handle conflicts, behind closed doors and so on. So what do you make of this spat? Not only is it public, it also involves the two highest profile apostles in the church, Paul and Peter. 
And to make the matters worse, it's been shared uh, way beyond the context where these original events occurred. Surely that's breaking the golden rule of, of conflict, you know, just keep it localised. Talk about blowing up the issue. Here it is in the Bible. You want to blow something up, put it in the Bible. It's, so it's been shared with every Christian in history with access to the New Testament, even with us here in Victor Harbour in 2019. Paul, did you really need to drag us into this conflict? What has Peter done to upset Paul? Is this like a Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull kind of spat? K. Rudd v. Julia. Their conflicts didn't help anyone, did they? Didn't help their parties, didn't help the national interest, let alone their own political careers. Where are they now? So what has caused Paul to go public with this criticism? Well, there is a problem in the early church. And the whole point of this letter is that Paul is writing to address this problem, but shock horror, seemingly the Apostle Peter, is also in some way caught up in this problem. At least he's not doing his bit to fix it. So our sermon is in two parts. First, the problem, and second, the response. On the, on the uh, sermon outline, I've said the solution, but I meant to say the response. The problem, the response. So part one, the problem. At some point prior to the writing of this letter, Peter has headed north from Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria, where Paul was at the time. So it's not Galatia, it's different from the recipients of the letter, but across in Galatia, perhaps people had heard rumblings of what had happened in Antioch, and Paul wants to set them straight. The activity... Uh, the focus of activity of the early church, of course, had begun in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had died and where he was raised from the dead. And then as the message of that gospel spread, so does the action, so does the sharing. And, 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 and by the time Galatians was written, this city up in the north, Antioch in Syria, had taken center stage in terms of the spread of the gospel it wasn't the starting point for the mission, but it really was the staging point for the mission of the gospel to the Gentiles. Antioch is where the believers in Christ were first called Christians, that's right. It's the city from which Paul's missionary journeys were commenced. It's very significant, amazing when you think of just how hard life has become for Christians in Syria today. Now, in, in Antioch, uh, there were many Jews, right? It's not a Jewish area, but many Jews had traveled there. Of course, some of them were very heavily influenced by the, the Greek culture of Antioch. Others sort of stuck more strictly to the, to the Jewish culture that they brought with them. And then, of course, there were uh, the, the Jews who had also become, sorry, the Gentiles who had also become Christians with little or no connection to Judaism at all. At all. So what you got in Antioch is this multi-ethnic, multi-religious community, and there are going to be tensions. Paul is based there at the time, and Peter visits. And for a while, everything's okay, uh, but they have some more visitors from Jerusalem, specifically from James. Now, this is James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the son, a son of Mary and Joseph, uh, a key leader 
in the church in Jerusalem, one of the pillars of that church in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know whether, I don't think we know whether James has specifically sent these guys to Antioch or whether Paul is just saying, you know, that's where they came from, from, from where James was. And I don't think we particularly know the specifics of their message because Paul doesn't tell us. that They may not have even had a, a very specific message. Their presence may have been enough. But Paul does tell us Peter's reaction to having these Jerusalem Jews join the fellowship in Antioch. Let's reread from verse 11. When Kephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So initially, Peter is unstressed by the ethnic diversity of this church and happily eats with non-Jews, the Gentiles, although this had been a big shift for Peter. You may recall a story back in Acts 10. Uh, In that chapter, we hear about how God gives several visions to Peter of a whole, t- whole lot of food uh, options laid down before him on a sheet. Uh, but these are foods that would have been unlawful for Jews to eat. And uh, God says to him in the visions, Peter, eat these things. Peter says, oh, no, Lord, I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat anything unclean. The Lord says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And this happens multiple times. And, of course, Paul, Peter is in the middle of one of these visions and there's a knock on the door. He goes down to see who's at the door. It's Roman soldiers. Uh Uh-oh. But he's not arrested. He's just taken for a friendly visit to the local centurion, whose name is Cornelius. And, of course, Cornelius wants to hear the gospel. Peter's amazed. Okay, I'll tell you the gospel. Tells him the gospel. Cornelius believes, wants to be baptized. And the Holy Spirit comes. And then Peter is just amazed. And he goes back to Jerusalem and he says, Hey, guys, guess what? Everything that was said in Isaiah about the Gentiles coming to, coming to God and being, being part of faith, it's true. It's not just for us. It's going uh, beyond us. And so this was a massive shift for the Jewish believers and is at the center of the issues here in Galatians. So Peter's been through this and he knows that the message of Jesus breaks down the barrier between Jews and non-Jews. Whereas the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, if you like, was with Israel, the New Covenant is now with those of faith from any nation, right? Basic, fundamental transformation. But here in Antioch, the barrier has come up again. Here is Petile, sorry, Petile. Peter in a Gentile city... And he's, I'm going too fast, and he's drawing back from the Gentiles, okay? He's separating from them and only eating with Jews. And, and why? What was his motivation? Did you see the emotion word in the text? What was, what was the emotion that was driving him? Fear. He was afraid of the circumcision group. Who are they? It's, it's hard to say. They may or may not have been the same group that's come from Jerusalem, but here's a 
a group of Jewish Christians who are trying to get Gentile Christians to become Jewish as well, because that will really sort of just make sure you tick, tick the box, you get over the line. Yes, believe in Jesus, but just make sure you, you become a Jew as well. Um, and that would happen by the males being circumcised. And obviously this is a very influential group. So Peter is now mysteriously absent from the Jewish, sorry, from the Gentile tables at lunch. When I was in senior high school, I, uh, I went to England. I did an exchange for six months to Cambridge. And uh, I started hanging out, when I went to school, um, I started hanging out with the first group of people that I could find. You know, they were friendly enough, this um, pretty quiet, bookish kind of group. Uh, not really the cool group, um, but that didn't matter to me, of course. They were just people like anyone else. But then I started getting looks from some of the guys in the cool group. Now, there was not much cool about me, okay? Um, but maybe they'd heard I was from Australia, you know, a little bit interesting. Uh, so two of these tough guys, 17-year-old Brits in their leather jackets and their tattoos and everything, they come over to me and they told me they were there to rescue me. <laughs> and I felt, I thought to myself, I don't really need rescuing from these people. They're nice people. Uh, but yeah, I'll come out and come and hang out with you guys too. That'll be great. And so I, and I made some good friendships with them. They told me all about their English football clubs and how insane they were about... Anyway, I could go on about it. And, and I didn't explicitly turn my back on these other friends, but as I look back at it, I realised I, I pretty much did a similar thing to what Peter did. I, I drew back from hanging out with the, the, these people who were just as valuable and significant, and, and I think I feared the disapproval of the cool group and, and what they'd say. It was a kind of peer pressure. But Paul uses stronger language when he's talking about this issue. He says it's hypocrisy. And in Peter's case, it's causing people to stumble. And because of Peter's high-profile public role, this, this hypocrisy can't just be dealt with behind closed doors. It's a public issue. It can't be just a public chat. It's got to be addressed publicly. And so Paul sets him straight. He stands up in front of the whole church and lets rip at Peter. Can you imagine it? What's happening to the church here? Are we about to collapse? Are we about to divide? Peter and Paul going at it. And now he's telling the Galatians about it. It's not like he's regretted this confrontation and thinking, oh, gee, what have I done? No, he's written it down in the Bible. If any of, and if any of his readers in Galatia are thinking, well, they, they too can draw back from full, open, loving, table-sharing fellowship with non-Gentile Christians, they'd better know that Paul has already rebuked the great apostle himself over this. If he's going to rebuke Peter, well, Peter was in the wrong. He'll, he'll, this is important. And Peter's great status as the apostle doesn't exempt him from being rebuked, not even in public, not even in the Bible. Now, in case you're thinking that Paul has been a little bit reckless here and thrown Peter's reputation under the bus, that he's not showing him the proper respect, well, think again. I, I, I don't think he's throwing mud on Peter's reputation at all. You know what I think? I think he's protecting it. 
I think he's fighting for it, trying to preserve it. Peter and Paul are preaching the same message, and this is the message that's the matter of life and death. And if Peter's behavior isn't corrected, then that message is being undermined. They might as well both pack up and go home. And so maybe this isn't a conflict at all. I think that's actually the wrong word to use to describe what's going on here. This is not a conflict. This is a rebuke. It's an admonishment. And it's worth noting, isn't it, that if, um, if Peter can be rebuked, surely any of us can be. Is it dishonouring to rebuke someone, do you think? What, what do you think? To call them out for their behaviour? No, I don't think so. I think what is dishonouring to a person is to allow them to continue if they are in hypocrisy as if that sort of thing doesn't matter. You know, you know somebody who's fiddling their taxes or fiddling their business accounts or whatever. You know someone who's starting to act flirtatiously with someone who's not their husband or wife. It's not conflict to go and call them out on it. I mean, a conflict might ensue. Uh, you know, it might not be pleasant. They might think you've compromised, their, you've said something bad about their character and so on, and that is very hard. But, you know, it's not, it's not really a fight. It's an act of love. You might feel nervous that they're going to snap at you, uh, but you rebuke them because you care for them. So that's the, that's the problem, part one. So part two, the response now, and we're looking at what Paul has to say. Uh, verse 14b, second half of verse 14, Paul says to Peter, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. That's okay, because you're now under the freedom of the gospel. Great. How is it then that you are now forced Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter, that's the hypocrisy right there. You're undermining the gospel. You're rebuilding the barrier uh, that the gospel tore down between Jews and Gentiles. You're preventing those who've now been brought into the people of God from interacting as fully-fledged members. They're kind of second-rate members. You're not welcoming your new brothers and sisters in Christ because you're holding on to your old ethnic membership badge. And those membership badges have now got to be thrown out. We need a different kind of membership badge. And then what happens is he, does, he goes through a reminder over the next few verses of the crux of what Jesus did on the cross and the difference that that makes. And so we're going to spend a bit of time on that, looking at these verses carefully. So first of all, verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, you've got to imagine inverted commas there, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there is a key word there, justified. That's a very big word in Christian theology. In fact, that word is at the very center, in some ways, of, um, of Christian belief. And so what is justification? What is it to be justified? Justification is about being right with God, being counted as just before God, being in the right with God, or more simply, having God's approval. 
Justification, having God's approval. And, th- approval. and this is the problem with Peter's behaviour. The gospel gives us God's approval if we put faith in Jesus Christ. And yet what Peter is doing is still dangling this approval just out of our reach, because we're Gentiles too, so he's, he's effectively doing it to us too. You know, He's just dangling full membership out of our reach. There's still an in-crowd with God's super approval or special approval, and you're not part of it if you're not a Jew. So we need to think a little bit more about this idea of justification by faith. Christians aren't making this stuff up about how to be right with God. I mean, how could you do that anyway? What we're trying to do is to understand and express what God has revealed in the Bible. Do we win God's approval? Do we work for God's approval? Or do we just do our best and hope for God's approval? Actually, it's none of those. You can't win God's approval. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's that there's a problem. If you try to work for it, we'll only ever fall short. And there's no point just hoping for it because God tells us that our sin is too serious to ignore. Our sin has, has corrupted us. But not just us, it's also corrupted the whole planet in some way. God promised death for sinners. And so the issue of God's approval is not just one for Peter and Paul, it's very much for us too. How can sinners be justified? That's the question. So continuing in verse 16. So we too, and he's talking about the Jews here, We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. You know, the Jews are the people who had the law, but we too are putting our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. People will say that you need more than faith to be right with God. You need to be a good person as well, right? No, not for justification. As Christians, we we seek to live good lives. We seek to please God. There's no doubt about that. But not for justification. Our justification, our approval before God, comes before our good living. It's the basis for our good living. It's the platform for our good living. It's not the result of our good living. If you put justification as the result of your good living, that you've hopefully lived better than the others, then what you've done is you've set up this law that becomes the basis of approval for God, and you're saying, no, the justification that Christ provides through the cross, um, not quite good enough. But law-keeping and good living cannot justify us before God, full stop. Bad news if you're hoping that you're better than everyone else. Doing good can't undo the bad. I'm tiling my ensuite at the moment. 
And uh, gee, it's easy to wreck tiles. You know, whether it's the tile cutter, you know, you're aiming to cut along this line and, and you manage to cut along this line, but also manage a line out here too. Or, you know, using this, um, this drill bit that's supposed to go through it and and this great big mark across the tile. Once it's damaged, you know, it's got to go in the skip. And, you know, all the good tiling in the world, can't, can't, you can't fix up that damage. It's, now, it's a trivial example, but our sin has permanent irreversible consequences and good living cannot fix those consequences full stop good living is not the solution to the problem however paul says that if we put our faith in jesus god justifies us god approves us extraordinary isn't it the sinner approved by faith that's the gospel he fixes us we don't fix ourselves. That's the key thing. Remember it, brothers and sisters. Justification is God's gift to us. He knows our sin is a problem and he doesn't overlook it. He doesn't just leave it and, and pretend that it's not a problem. He doesn't leave us to try to fix it ourselves. What he does is he justifies anyone who will stop trying to justify themselves. He wants us simply to receive justification. It's like he says, I will count you right with me if only you will look to me for your justification rather than continuing to look to your own efforts and then continuing to look left and right to see if everyone else is as good as you or if you're meeting up with them. Stop looking at everyone else. Stop looking at yourself. Look at me. I'm the one who's going to justify you. I am going to win give you my approval. It can only be that way. But how does this work? How is a person justified by faith? Now, uh, looking at verses 19 to 21, these are pretty dense verses. It's worth casting your eyes over them because you may need to read them a few times just to see what Paul's saying. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Okay, he's summarizing here. The law only brings death. Because it's like a light that shines on our failures. A bit disappointing if you're trying to live by the law, isn't it? All it brings is death, condemnation. It, all it does is shows us how bad we are. We don't live by the law. Because all the law is going to do is convict you of your sin. You know, if you're reading through parts of the law, and even reading through the, the injunctions in the New Testament, um, I, I just find myself constantly thinking, I'm not doing this great. I'm not, I'm not, all it ever does is just remind me. I've got this so much that I fall short on. But is that conviction of sin, is that a bad thing? No, because uh, it makes me cling to Christ. And that's faith in Christ, isn't it? And so the way I live for God is not by trying to prove myself to him, but by clinging to Christ. Not clinging to some sense that I'm a, I'm a good person, that, I've, that there's goodness in me somewhere and surely he'll see it. No, I cling to him. That's how I live. Verse 20, look at these words. I have been crucified with Christ. 
Wow. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If I put my faith in Christ, then God counts me as having been crucified with Christ. That's what I think he's saying there. He counts me as having been there with him on the cross. You see, my sin, it, it was supposed to put me to death. But Jesus went to the cross as the place for sin to be put to death. And so my sin put him to death. Not just the fact that humanity bears a certain responsibility for the fact that the Son of God is on the cross, but also that Jesus actually takes our sin on him. He dies my death upon the cross. You, you know that old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's not just a sentimental kind of remember, remember Jesus in the cross. It's actually a really important question. Were you actually there? Were your sins in him when he died? They better be. Because that's where sin is put to death. My sin upon his shoulders. And so I'm counted as dead to sin because my sin is now dead. And so it can no longer condemn me because its condemning power was absorbed when Jesus was condemned on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Isn't it extraordinary? God counts me as perfectly sinless. You know, he knows that I sin, but he counts me what I need to be to be with him, and he wants me with him, he wants you with him, and so he counts those who put their faith in Christ as perfectly innocent, as if you've never sinned. The tile is brand new. I'm justified not because of my deeds, but because my deeds have been taken away. And so the life I now live is the life of the risen Christ. It's not Mark, the old sinner. I mean, you still see Mark, the old sinner. But God, he doesn't see Mark, the old sinner. It's not like he's blind. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't see Mark, the old sinner. He sees Mark, the justified. Shannon, the justified. Mark, whose sin went with Jesus to the cross. Mark, who is now right with him. That's liberation. That's, that's beautiful. Paul says, continuing on in this verse, verse 20, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, in contrast to living in faith in my own deeds, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that really is the verse, in a, in a way, a verse that summarizes the whole of Galatians. That's how we live, by faith. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Those are pretty stinging words, aren't they? So how do we mock the cross? You may not be intending to mock the cross. You may, we may not even be realizing that we're doing it, but all you need to do to mock the cross is add to it. 
we say the grace of God may be the foundation of the faith, but being a Christian also involves holding a certain set of views, maintaining behaviours and social acceptability. We say the grace of God may be the foundation of the faith, but you need to keep the Ten Commandments or, or a contemporary equivalent just to be sure. We say the grace of God may be the foundation of the faith, but you've got to surrender everything, everything, and make sure your surrender is complete and full and un unfettered. Just to, you know, just to be sure. And you strip the power of the cross to bring people God's grace. It's not about all those things. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. And see, what Peter was doing by drawing back from Gentile Christians, he probably, you know, at the time he may not have realized how significant this was, but he's rebuilding that barrier of law that the cross destroyed. We can say we believe in justification by faith, but act as if justification really comes by kind of getting your life together. Uh, are there any real mathematicians in the crowd? I just need to check. I'm going to do a little bit of maths now. Any real mathematicians? Good. Because <laughs> you're not going to like this one. Um, so this is gospel maths, all right? First of all, grace plus nothing equals what? Well, you're all too clever for me. Grace plus nothing equals grace, right? Grace plus zero equals grace. Mathematically secure, no problems. Okay, here's another one. This one might test you. Grace plus law equals nothing. Okay, that's, the, that's gospel mathematics. A little bit different, but that's what we've got to remember. Leave grace alone and you get grace. Add anything to grace and you get zero, even if you're the great apostle Peter. So instead, let's believe it, let's rejoice in it, let's live in it, let's come to God confidently and thankfully on the basis of his great mercy. So what does it look like for us in our church? There are some personal implications briefly and then also some community implications. So personally, have you responded to the grace of God? Are you personally putting your faith in God because this is a matter of life and death if you if you don't put faith or if you put faith and then just try and add that's a risk you put faith in Christ and God will count you as guiltless have you done that I guess that's the first question you can do it today you can do it during you can do it right now you can do it during my prayer at the end of the sermon we can catch up later that's that's the fundamental starting point here uh, then of course we sin as Christians what do, we, what do we make of that? Does that sin not matter? Well, it, yes, it does still matter because Christ has died for our sin. So we repent of our sin, but it's not our repentance that will save us. We will continue to keep coming back to the grace of the gospel. We'll continue to live by faith in what he's done. What, what about our good deeds? We will go on and do good deeds as Christians, won't we? Yes, that's right. So we've got to get the order of this, this right. We believe in Jesus then we are justified, then we do good deeds. That's different, isn't it, from what I've been saying, which the, the, bad, the wrong order, which is believe in Christ, then do a few good deeds and hopefully justified. No, 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 those, those last two are around the wrong way. So then what, what, do, what do good deeds look like? They're, they're deeds that come from thankfulness, 
rather than anxiety or selfishness or, you know, some attempt to prove ourselves. So personally, keep doing good deeds, brothers and sisters. Keep living well, but always remember your justification comes from him, not you. And then as a community, how do we, how does this work as a community? Well, simple question, how do we treat each other and also, how do we treat people who come through that door who are a little bit different from us? Maybe people of different races. I mean, I, I love all your lovely faces, but they, you know, we are all pretty similar in a lot of ways, aren't we? Our faces do. I mean, maybe there's a profile of our, our area and so on, but um, it's, just, it's worth thinking about. Um, what about different background and education? I don't know. We're all quite similar, aren't we? It's, it's wonderful, it's so easy. But um, the gospel's saying, actually, no barriers, you know, not, not, not race, background, um, education, sexuality. Since we all come to God as broken, all come to God in need of his grace, then we have no grounds for looking down on anyone, do we? So how welcoming are we as a church? Um, the staff... We did this little thing this week in our staff meeting called the Biblical Inclusion Audit. And we just asked a bunch of questions um, just about how welcoming we are as a church. I won't go through the whole detail with you, but it was really helpful for us. We were looking at, you know, whether there are, whether we have, um, you know, derogatory language or joking about different, you know, groups in society or whatever. Then that question of whether we all would, would agree that we're all broken, uh, that, that confession of sin is important. On the whole, we did quite well at these, by the way. Um, uh, you know, some areas that we thought we, we would like to address. We're all called to build our identity on the basis of our union with Jesus rather than on, the, on anything else. Um, we share life and, and meals and family life and so on with those of different backgrounds. But we did wonder, you know, how much do we share with people from different backgrounds and so on. So that was a helpful process. I encourage you to be sort of thinking about some of those same questions yourself. Of course, you might think, ha-ha, audit, sounds like law. But no, the, the purpose of that audit was to see whether we understood grace properly, okay? So ask yourself the questions, are we understanding grace well there's much more we could say but i need to bring things to a conclusion rapidly there's a wonderful prayer at the end of uh, some of the anglican communion services that some of you will know well it's called the prayer of approach or the prayer of humble access hear these words we do not presume to come to your table merciful lord trusting in our own righteousness but in your manifold and great mercies we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. And the prayer continues. But what does all this mean? It means God loves you. You know, we can, there, there are some big theological ideas here, but it is, it is pretty easily distilled. God loves people. That's why he did this. God loves you and he wants you with him from today, if, not, if you haven't become a Christian yet. He's fixed it all, provided for the fixing of it all. He's the reconciler. 
And he's done it because he loves you and he wants you to depend on him and entirely on, on him. So with that in mind, let's pray to him now for his help. Our Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your great gift of justification. That when your righteousness was revealed, it wasn't revealed as, as a whip, but it was revealed as a gift. And that because of this extraordinary event of Jesus on the cross, you have counted us as just, as righteous, as approved by you. And we give you thanks for that wonderful, wonderful message that our sin went onto his shoulders. So, Father, help us as individuals and as a church to live this out, not to make the mistake of rebuilding barriers, but to seek to preach this gospel to all and to call on every man, woman and child to come to you with faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.